Hey guys, welcome to Patreon episode 92 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we're so excited to bring you your first episode of May. And we want to thank everyone who came out to do the date night with us. It was really special and it was really fun. It was nice connecting with everybody. It really was. And like we said while we did the date night, we're definitely going to try and do it um, multiple times a month just to accommodate different time zones. And of course, everyone's welcome to come, but we just figured that would probably be the best way to do it. But there really is no way for us to record it right now, unfortunately, and we apologize for that. But I mean, logistically, that's kind of hard to figure out to get our audio plus the audio of the show that's streaming. So... That's something we're going to work on. It's a work in progress. Yes. Everything is a work in progress. We are a work in progress. We definitely are a work (laughs) in progress. Okay, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Always. Palo Alto, California has been made famous by being one of the principal cities in Silicon Valley. It is home to multiple tech companies and various universities, including Stanford. And with that comes a hefty price tag if you want to live in one of the most coveted towns in the United States. With the cost of living in the city being 48% higher than the national average, it is no surprise that the average base salary of someone living in that town is $118,000 a year. And even they would have to live with someone who worked as well. So like they'd have to have a dual income to even be able to afford the town. Okay, well we know what's going on. We're not going to be over we there. We could never. We that. cannot do that. <laughs> maybe if we had like four people living in the house with us then maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but I'm not a big roommate fan. So as from the last podcast. Right, right. We will. <laughs> Roommates don't tend to work out. So in a town like that, everyone is doing their best to impress And in 2000, the couple that seemed to have it all, down to a science, was Kenneth and Christine Fitzhugh. 57-year-old Ken was a real estate consultant, and 53-year-old Christine was a music teacher who taught lessons at various private schools in Palo Alto. Together, they had it all. A beautiful colonial home on Escobita Avenue with a manicured lawn and luxurious vines creeping up the front facade of the house. It was perfect, as was the family inside. The couple has been described as never having a hair out of place or letting their smiles waver. They were great friends, a loving couple, and perfect parents to their two sons. That is, until one of them was found dead on May 5th, 2000. What detectives uncovered was a sordid tale of deception and betrayal. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On May 5th, 2000, Ken Fitzhugh was doing what he normally did, helping people. He was the guy in the friend group that was the doer. When he went on vacation with the Fitzhugh family, Ken was the man who pitched the tent at night and then woke up early the next day to blow up the raft. That was just him, not John. Okay, you know what? That's (laughs) not fair. You automatically just assume I don't know how. Hmm. To, To pitch a tent? You know what? Okay. We've not been camping until. I, I will say that if I had to follow a manual, I might as well just th- like throw it out the window because I'm never good for whatever reason. I know that makes no sense, guys, but I cannot read a manual and, and do something. I just have to figure it out. I have to look at it and just wing it. Yes. So that's odd, but yeah, I. It's don't not know. odd. You're a tactile learner. Oh, is that what it is? That's okay. What you you're are. bringing your teacher into this. I am. All right. All right. Yes. So on that Friday, Ken was going to pick up some family friends and take them shopping. Their names were Galen and Carol. The two women were planning a casino-themed party in celebration of Galen's birthday, but it was also like a charity event, and that was supposed to be the following day. However, they needed to go pick up all of the gambling things, the tables, the roulette wheels, and other like 
odds and ends from like the rental and party places in town. So Ken volunteered to take them because all of the things that they were getting were pretty big and they would be able to fit inside his suburban with no problem, but it would have been more difficult for the women to pick up on their own. Okay, so Ken just always coming to the rescue. Yes. All right. So he told the women that he would pick them up outside of Carol's house at 1.30 p.m. because she lived around the corner from him. And like clockwork, he was there to pick up the women at the exact time he said he would. When he got there, Carol remembered that she left her purse inside, so she ran inside to get it. And when she climbed into the car with Galen in the passenger seat and Ken driving, she greeted the Fitzhugh family dogs that Ken brought with him. Adorable. Adorable. Do we know what kind of dogs they are? A poodle and a Pomeranian. All right. Oh, they're so cute. Pomeranians are cool, though. Yes. They're pretty, they're pretty interesting. Anyway. Ken told them that he hoped they didn't mind, but they'd have to make a stop at his house. Christine's school had called him to let him know that she never made it to her 1240 class. So it was a little different. Like she went from school to school teaching, I guess, like, you know, like the specials. So like the lessons or maybe even individuals. So it wasn't like she had to report to school at 8 a.m. She showed up for only her class time. Okay, that, that must be nice. Oh, that's like a dream schedule. That's cool, though. But I guess if your husband's a real estate consultant, you can kind of do that. Right. It's not like... You can pick and choose those lesson times. Right, exactly. It's not like your uh, your significant other is uh, collecting butterflies and uh, all that other stuff. Yeah. I've used that phrase before, but that's so true. I love yeah. that meme. Yeah. Anyway. So um, Christine's school called and said she had a class at 1240 and she didn't come. And they were just calling to check and see if everything was okay with her. Ken had been out running errands and at work, so he didn't know really what was happening at home. So after the school called him, he tried to call the house, but there was no answer. So the women, who were all also very close friends with Christine, agreed that they should make the detour because that didn't sound like Christine at all. Like She was a very, just like Ken, a very punctual and detail-oriented person. Okay. So when he reached the front of his house, he didn't pull into the driveway. Instead, he parked the very large vehicle on the side of the narrow street. And this is something that the women remembered because they were like, oh, if somebody tried to drive by, they wouldn't be able to fit through. So they were kind of like, oh, I hope this is fast because they were nervous. You mean every single block in Midtown Manhattan? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So, but this is residential. That's so true. So it, yeah. it's tight housing there. So leaving the car running, he hopped out of the driver's seat and said he would be right back. He went into the house and he left the front door open so the women could see what he was doing in the house. Because these are like big front doors. Um, first, Ken went upstairs, obviously, to see if his wife was there. And then she must not have been because they saw him come back down the stairs in a bit of a hurry and then head down the hallway, which further went into the house, meaning they could no longer see him. Okay. Um, So hold on really quick. They were, were they with this couple the night before? No. Okay. So he, they just, he just. Just just, picked them up at one thirty. Okay. So now, because the reason why I'm asking this is because. I'm trying to set this up. Is it just coincidence that he has, quote unquote, an alibi from two other people in the car? And is this a form of like creating like, hey, listen, I was with this person and this person and we just checked the house. I don't know where she is. Potentially. But right. um, they do have two sons. One of the sons is in college. The other is still in high school. So that night the son would have been home. Okay. With him. Got it. Okay. So they don't see him anymore. And a few minutes pass. And then he starts running out of the house. So he comes running out of the house and he's screaming, come help me. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. So Galen and Carol were in shock. One asked if they thought, like, is Ken joking? Is he playing a prank on us? But because he never came back out... They kind of like had a bad feeling about it. So they 
went back they went into the house they felt like they had no other choice like whether he's joking or not we kind of have to follow through with this because something might be wrong i mean come on you don't want to be the only person that doesn't get out of the car when someone asks for help yeah (laughs) you gotta do the right thing so the women followed him inside just in time to see him go through a door that led down to the basement so the women were very familiar with the house because they're close friends So once they descended the stairs, they knew immediately that this was not a joke. Christine was laying at the bottom of the stairs, her head on the cement of the basement floor and her torso and legs still on the stairs trailing upward. She was face down and there was blood everywhere. Oh, man. So the women were in shock. Ken was standing next to where... Um, Christine's head was located and like basically down in the basement and he yelled up to them there's so much blood I can't get a pulse call 911 so and this all is 10 minutes from from them being picked up to right now is only a 10 minute span which I would think would cause this weird like Almost like they're not. There's no action being done by the people there because they think it's like a joke. It's like when you get jump started from zero to a hundred yes. because you're not even registering that something's wrong and that your friend's at the bottom of the stairs. It's like yeah. It's like this crazy thing that happens. It's like whoa! Ten minutes ago, I was just standing outside waiting to right. pick up a roulette wheel. Yeah, exactly. It's Holy like maybe I should cow. respond faster and actually, yes. you know, do what I have to do. <laughs> So at 1.40 p.m., Carol dialed 911 from the cordless phone that was on a dock in the kitchen. In her shock, Carol forgot the address to the house and had to run outside to go check the number on the house. She told the operator that someone has fallen and has been badly hurt and that help is needed right away. When the operator asked if anyone was there like besides her she said that her friend was with her and that the woman's husband was downstairs with her so right away the operator's kind of getting the scene for what's going on here and the call ended after that which i found pretty interesting because usually they want to stay on the phone until police contact has been made but maybe there was different protocol back then But the women went back downstairs and they noted that neither Christine or Ken had moved from their position. So, like, he's still standing in the same position and hasn't moved. And he yells up to them, like, do you know CPR? So if they would have stayed on the phone, they could have gotten, like, the proper CPR techniques or been talked through the CPR process. Right. What I was going to say was maybe it's just it could be either one or two things. Maybe um, it's just completely out of shock and just, like... Like, they're so panicked that they just, they called for what they needed and then just hung up, you know? She, the the hang up could have been on the friend's end. I, I see what you're you saying. You know, like, I think that's what it probably is. Yeah, we don't is. have they're confirmation yeah. on that. So, Ken and Christine, still same position. Nobody's moved. Ken yells up, call 911. We need people to come right away. And they're like, we already called. Like he hadn't, he thought they didn't call yet. And then he asked them if they knew CPR. Galen did know CPR because she was a teacher. And actually Galen and Carol, uh, Galen's a teacher and Carol is her principal. But they had taken off from school to prepare for this event. So that's why they were free during the day. So Galen knows CPR and she knew she was trained, knew what she had to do, but she was really nervous because she didn't want to mess anything up or do anything wrong. And this is someone she loves. This is her friend. So it's really difficult to perform it on her in the condition she's in. But Ken was yelling at her to help. So that kind of like snapped her back into it. And the two of them moved the lower half of Christine's body down off the stairs onto the cement floor. And in order to perform CPR, they had to turn her body over because, remember, she was face down. So as Galen began chest compressions, Ken would wait for her to finish, and then he would perform the mouth-to-mouth breaths. So they were kind of tag-teaming it. When they had first turned Christine on her back, Galen noticed that the blood began to pool 
in the area where her head was. But now that she was doing chest compressions, obviously pumping her heart, that pool of blood was getting larger and larger and larger. So it was almost making her bleeding intensify. So she feared that they were doing more harm than good in performing the CPR. Yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something there. I I mean, you can't be doing that. If you visibly see, like, you know, more blood's coming out or, like, you could possibly hurt them further, like, there's no point. I At least I don't think. Right. Well, this would have been a time where if you're on the phone, it, it, that's a question you could ask the dispatch. That's a good point. So just as she was going to say something to Ken, she saw a side of him that she never saw before. He was irate screaming he had lost all composure and not in the way that you think a man would staring at his wife bleeding to death on the floor in front of him he was angry um those shoes he screamed those goddamn shoes he said between blowing breaths into his unconscious wife and that's direct quotes from him she must have fallen in those shoes i told her to throw those things away a thousand times So Galen must have looked confused because that's when he tilted his head towards the stairs. And behind them, that's when she saw laying on the stairs, um, block heeled shoes on the stairs. And she wasn't wearing shoes. And they were the kind of like sandal like heels. So there's no back. So it was pretty obvious that she had been wearing those shoes and then fallen down the stairs. Okay. And that's kind of when um, the two women actually took in the scene. And the scene was pretty obvious. And they didn't realize what was happening because, like you said, they were in shock. Like, it was kind of like you're jolted awake. But at the bottom of the stairs, there was this big, large brass bell, like kind of like the big bells you see on boats. Um, And they had it as a decorative piece, but they hadn't been using it. So they brought it down to the bottom of their basement stairs. So there was a big bell and there was a little bit of blood on it. And there was dry cleaning next to it. So what looked like happened was that she was coming down the stairs in those shoes. She tripped because the heel must have gotten caught or something. And... She fell forward down the stairs, hit her head on the bell. On the way down. Like, on, on the, the way, way down. down. And then that must have knocked her out. And when they found her, her head was on the cement, but half into the dry cleaning plastic. And that might have been cutting off her airway. Yeah, it's interesting the way like she wound up at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. I think that the takeaway here is, and, and they're doing uh, an observation as well, so I'll do one. It is a little odd because I don't think anyone, whether it's a husband, wife, um, and, and you name it, you know, I don't think you would say those kind of remarks when someone is not breathing and we're doing chest compressions and they're covered in blood. Yeah. I don't think that's what you would say. I think you would be more irate and like like in, in, in the way of like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, you know, like like that. Right. But not I mean, that. maybe that's just how he reacts because we've seen people not react. We've seen people overreact. Yes, but I'm getting the feeling that maybe this is like almost like we're putting on a play. Okay. On stage. Okay. You know, the shoes. Okay, like. He put a lot of focus. Uh, he's focusing on the shoes, trying to make them believe maybe that the shoes is what maybe caused this accident. Okay. For all we know, I mean, the bell, yeah, it's at the bottom of the stairs now, but maybe it wasn't before. For all we know, did he maybe hit her with the bell? And that's why oh, there's wow. blood on it and she fell down the stairs. I mean, there's so many things. So, you know, you take everything with a grain of salt, but okay. you, you got to look into it. Right. I'm sure we'll look into all this other oh, stuff. Oh, we will look into all this other <laughs> stuff. So just then, as soon as, like, they're kind of taking in the scene and realizing what must have happened, Carol yells down the stairs that the emergency response team is there. Good. So the professionals are are there. All right. So when the firemen got to the scene, because the firefighters are the first to respond and get there, they told Ken and Galen that they had done a good job. They moved the dry cleaning and the large brass bell out of the way um, so they can continue working on her. 
As the firefighters are working on his wife, Ken stands up and holds his hands out in front of him. And he seems like he's in complete shock. Like he's just kind of in a daze now at this point. And he's holding, and this is the account from Galen and Carol, that, and they were both in in tremendous shock, him and Galen. And he's holding his hands out in front of him. And there's so much blood from his hands to his elbow that it's literally dripping off of him because her head was bleeding so much. And while he was doing the compressions, he just had gotten blood all over him because he was leaning down in the pool while he was trying to give her the breaths. So he was in shock. She didn't even want to walk up the stairs into the main floor. So there's an exit from the basement into the backyard and she left out that door while he walked up the stairs to get back into the house. Okay. When he got to the first floor, the main floor of the house, he noticed that Carol was talking to a police officer that arrived at the scene. He didn't stop and talk to them. Now, this is the account from Carol and the police officer. He just kind of like was in a daze walking with his hands outstretched, dripping blood throughout the house. And he he went into a bathroom and in the bathroom is where he washed his hands and it looked like he splashed water on his face and he came back out. And now there's two police officers there that had arrived and they stopped Ken from going back downstairs and kind of say to him, like, you don't really want to. Like, let the firefighters do their job here. Don't keep traumatizing yourself by going down there. And that was when he, you know, it was the first unofficial interview when they're just saying, like, what, what went down? So in an interview, the first responding officer said that when he was taking in that scenario, um, the first guy who arrives, he goes halfway down the stairs So this is when Ken is still washing his hands and the police officer and the firefighter, he says, I don't remember what passed between us, but I got the impression from the man, the firefighter, that he was trying to tell me something's wrong here. Like, make sure you're like thorough, thorough, because this is not what it's someone's trying to project it to be. Yeah, it, it's it's a little fishy. Yeah, almost like the, like the whole like blood on his arms and stuff. I just feel like it's a little theatrical, like that he's like really trying to sell this. Okay, if, you think if he's, he's selling guilty. it? You think he's selling the shoes? He's selling the trauma. He's selling the right. blood. Okay. Yes, you know, and, he's and theatrical. The, and, and the friends. Don't forget the friends being there as okay. a, as a way to say, well, we all came in at the same time and yeah. found her that way. And the officer, like in retrospect, said, like, yeah, it was pretty obvious, like. Obviously, that nod from the firefighter was very helpful because that then made them like want to handle the case a little bit more differently than it would be if they were just covering an accident, you know, like an accidental death. And he said when he walked down those stairs and he saw all that blood, he was like, this is bad. Like, and these are men who have seen things like this before. So obviously head wounds bleed more than others, but it seemed like too much blood. Right, like I'm sure you fall down, you fall downstairs, you're going to be hurt. Yeah. But I mean, there might be a difference between falling downstairs and maybe a blunt force hit to the back of the head. Well, we'll get into why it was more blood than it should have been from a fall. Okay. So when the detectives from the Palo Alto Police Department arrived to investigate what has so far been described as an unattended death, Like, that's how first it was issued, because that's what happens when someone dies when they're alone. It's called an unattended death. Okay, I didn't didn't even know that. Yeah, so now their job is to discover what happened. So those men, the detectives, find problems with the crime scene right away. They agree with the first responders at the scene that there's entirely too much blood. But they also find fault in the scene in general. Now, the scene was not as it had been when the body of Christine Fitzhugh was originally found because her husband and her friend had to move her first in order to do the CPR. And then the firefighters had to move the bell. They had to move the dry cleaning and they had to move other things within the basement in order to 
all like have room for their equipment. So that makes things really difficult for the detectives because the whole scene has been messed with. However, it was described to detectives that Christine's husband and friend had ascertained that Christine had fallen down the stairs wearing a heeled shoe and carrying dry cleaning. Upon falling down the stairs, she must have hit her head on a brass bell that was at the foot of the stairs. And there was kind of like a ring on the ground that showed them the location of the the bell that it had been there. Okay, so the object was there so long Correct. That, that it created a ring of yes. it being... Okay, I see what you're saying. The amount of blood was unbelievable. They had never seen so much. The only item that was involved in the incident that had not been touched was the heeled shoe that remained on the stairs. Now, just to describe it, because I've heard it described as like a high heel shoe, and that is very not true. It's like a heeled open toe sandal, but the heel itself is only a few inches in height, and it's a block heel, but like a big block. So it's like a pump? No, no, no. The pump would be like a stiletto. Oh, oh it's so, not. Okay. It is the opposite of See, that. See, this is why you're I, trying. I'm trying to understand. It would shoes. be like I had a big block heel that took up my entire half uh, back half of my shoe. Okay. So when when you have a block heel, it creates more stability, and it's easier to walk on because you're not balancing on that one stiletto. You're it's a whole big block to I see balance what you're saying. on. So that she should have way more like stability. Like I wear than she block did. heels to the weddings because it's easier, right? Oh, I can do it longer. Okay. I can I can survive the night longer, right? I see what you're saying. Yes. All right. So she should have more stability. She should have a lot more stability. It's not what I would ever consider a dangerous shoe. Okay. So like I I told like him saying I found that weird too. Like him saying, I told her to throw those away. Like, it's not something I'd be like, whoa, you better be careful going on the stairs and those things. It's not like that. Okay. <laughs> it's a big, and the and a lot of times the, now the block can be varying degrees of like size, but this takes like the whole bottom half of her heel. So like, it's a very big block shoe. And obviously I'll, I'll post pictures of it, but it's not something I would look at and say, ooh, don't go down the stairs in those bad boys. You know? I gotcha. Thank you for teaching me the ins and outs of shoes. You're welcome. I appreciate I appreciate you saying thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Keep reading. <laughs> so the one thing about the heel that the detectives found odd was the fact that the shoe for the right foot was on the left side of a step. So if the shoe was never touched... How would it get to the opposite side of the staircase? That's not something that would really happen during a fall because her body never twisted. She just fell flat forward. So they had some questions. They thought that was odd. Almost like the shoe was placed there. Right. Or like just thrown like after the fact. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just see where they end up. Yep. Or the body was moved multiple times and that's why you never know. Yeah. So wanting to question Ken further than just asking him the basic questions that the detectives asked him at the scene. um, They asked him to come down to the police station with them. And Ken initially said no. He said he didn't want to leave his wife. And the detective told him that there was really nothing more for him to do at the scene and that the only thing that they would be doing was moving his wife. And it's probably better if he wasn't there for that, because that can be very emotional and difficult. So finally, after some more coaxing, he finally agreed to go down to the station with the detective. At the station, Ken told the same story that he had in the house. He had found her and it looked like she hit her head on the bell and he performed CPR on her and he was in shock when he had all of that blood on him when the firefighters arrived. Um, And he said he, he had tried his best to save Christine's life, but he was just totally in shock. And the shoes. It had been the shoes. The same way Galen described it as if, you know, Like, she did tell the detectives he kind of snapped, and they got to see it because he was explaining the whole thing, and he was staying relatively calm, and then all of a sudden he he snapped, 
And again, those shoes, those shoes. And he kept yelling. And Ken got so angry. He yelled and screamed and slammed his fist down at the table. He got really loud and violent. And it was always like, those shoes, those effing shoes. Like, that's what he kept saying. And it got so bad that other detectives rushed into the interrogation room because they thought that the there was like a fight happening. That's how loud this man got about this. That's something that is a absolute red flag. This is the second person to make the case that this man went from totally fine and quiet to loud and crazy. Yeah. And that is just a switch that he's just able to either turn on or turn off or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he just snaps. I don't know. Or maybe he's getting mad. I don't know. I don't. I, yeah, I, I still don't know. Is this the kind of thing where people have been married for decades and they fight about the same thing and finally this is what happens? No, definitely not. Okay. Definitely not. Because like if this was to happen to you, God forbid, I, I would be in there obviously pleading my innocence and that I had nothing to do with it. But I would also be so concerned about How's my wife? What's going on? Like, I would be devastated. Right. I mean, I understand everyone handle, handles grief differently, but what's triggering him is just bizarre. Me, even if he was to say, I'm I'm so I'm mad right now that you guys are even thinking that I might be involved in this and not, right. you know, maybe say that, not the shoes, the effing shoes. Like, what, what what's with the shoes? You're getting, like, it's just, it's I bizarre. I it's too but, much. But to me, it also goes to, the family seems to try to have this picturesque um, Facebook, Instagram kind of life. I know that this is 2000, but I'm just trying to say, like, you know, this picturesque life that everyone wants to emulate and just, and just, oh, my God, look at them. They're perfect. So right. I think that those two people making those uh, claims about his anger and how easily he was triggered, it, it means something. It means we don't know what happens behind closed doors here. Right. I think right. we're starting to see that. Okay. So the detectives were trying really hard, like you said, not to judge Ken for his outburst, but they have seen grief before. And yes, his wife's death was sudden and brutal, but the anger was very odd because it seemed not like he was angry about the situation and not like he was angry about her leaving him because they've seen that before. But it seemed like he was so angry at the the shoes and her like it didn't seem like it was on par with the other acts of anger that they've seen in people that have lost people suddenly right and and they're pretty good judges of character you know so they're like there's something kind of off here they felt so the next stage of the investigation would be to classify the death was this an accidental death or was this a homicide in order to determine that the medical examiner would have to perform an autopsy In this case, the medical examiner, who had originally performed the autopsy, asked the medical examiner for Santa Clara County to come in for extra assistance. The original medical examiner had found some troubling things that they wanted a second opinion on. What troubled the two experts the most were the series of lacerations, seven to be exact, at the back of Christine's scalp. Those injuries did not occur when someone falls down a flight of stairs in their home. With a fall down the stairs that was the height of the basement stairs in the Fitzhugh home, it would have been normal to see maybe two head lacerations. But in Christine's case, there were seven. And of those seven, they were in varying angles, something again that is not consistent with a fall down a flight of stairs at home unless you're talking about someone falling down several flights of stairs, which is not something that happened. There was 12 stairs that she had fallen down, and we're still not clear where in the staircase she began the fall. But then there was something else. Besides the seven lacerations, there was petechial hemorrhaging of the eyes and mouth. Hemorrhaging was also found in the deep tissue of her neck, which led them to only one conclusion strangulation. Both medical examiners determined that this was a homicide. That is crazy. But the fact that he would think that he would get away with this, if the, if he strangled her 
and tried to play it off as falling down the stairs. That's crazy. Well, and seven lacerations. Right. But we've seen this a lot. I, why is it yeah, husbands? The staircase. Yeah. Why do husbands love staircases? I was it, thinking it doesn't work. the Peterson case right away, too. With yeah, this. it doesn't well, work. Well, I'm not done, though. Okay. We don't know if it's the husband. All right. You're right. I jumped the gun. The Fitzhugh house was immediately made a crime scene, and Ken was informed that his wife's death was not an accident. It, in fact, had not been those damn shoes. Crime scene technicians descended on the crime scene. What did not work in their favor was the fact that in an attempt to save the victim's life, the crime scene was very tampered with. Still, they got down on their hands and knees and they scoured every inch of the basement as well as the rest of the house. But they found nothing that could assist detectives. Well, I don't want to say anything. Detectives were able to track down what Christine had done that day based on a receipt and a scone that was found at the house. Christine had visited a coffee shop and bought coffee and a scone. A scone which was uneaten in the kitchen. So it was as if she was interrupted in the middle of her normal routine. But that was all they found physically at the house. Detectives were also able to track down a FedEx driver that tried to make a delivery at the house. However, he had been unsuccessful because no one answered the door. But he had gone to the house while Christine was out getting coffee, as confirmed by the receipt. So that didn't necessarily help with the time of murder. Now, according to friends and family, Christine's two sons took the news of her death like any two sons would very hard like it was devastating to them they struggled deeply with what had happened to their mother and the fact that the murder had been so violent and personal as a strangling but also within their own home so they found it very hard to return to the home the fact that christine was strangled was also on the mind of detectives because it seemed like something so personal to do and they just couldn't let go of the violent outburst from Ken. So, I mean, like a personal murder done in violence, the husband's violent. I mean, you're like putting two and two together here. So they asked him if he would come in for another round of questioning, and he agreed to. The purpose of this line of questioning was to establish what Ken had done that morning. So what is your alibi? Ken said that he left the house at 11 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. He had gone to look at a property in San Bruno, which would have taken him 45 minutes to get to. Then, after he looked at the property, he drove the 45 minutes back to come pick up Galen and Carol um, so they could get the things for casino night the following day. But while he was driving back from San Bruno, was when he received the call from Christine's school that she hadn't shown up, which is why as soon as he picked up the women, he said he made a detour to the house. So he listed many people that were with him and saw him at the various locations. So it is definitely a solid alibi, and it did check out when they looked into it. And it seemed as if maybe Ken was not the suspect that they thought he was like maybe it was a little too obvious that the husband did this you know so this whole time there was something nagging the detective he felt as if it was wrong that there was not more physical evidence based off of the fact that there had been several lacerations to the back of the head and that's because now remember there was a lot of blood at the scene but all of the blood at the scene came from them turning the body over and then beginning chest compressions. But if there were seven lacerations that took place, there would have been more blood all over the place. Because if that's the aftermath of the blood flow, the original amount of blood flow would have been even more. So they're thinking, okay, something is strange here and we need to look at this scene again, right? So they ask the chief medical examiner if he could accompany them back to the crime scene with the crime scene technicians and kind of communicate with each other and see, like, what's happening with this crime scene because something felt wrong to him. 
Right away, the chief medical examiner found the problem with the crime scene. Not enough blood. The detectives were a bit flabbergasted. What do you mean not a lot of blood? Because there was so, like, the one detective said, that was the most blood I've ever seen at a crime scene. And the medical examiner was like, nope, it wasn't enough. Although it seemed like a lot to the untrained eye, it was only a few cc's of blood in that large pool that was now dried up and coagulated on the basement floor. They explained that the seven deep lacerations at the varying angles across the back of the head would have produced a tremendous amount of blood, like an unbelievable like elevator scene in The Shining amount of blood. Like, oh my God. He's like, okay. you would remember this. Uh, so based on the scene and the fact that blood wasn't covering everything, including like if she hit her head that hard and then hit her head again on the bell, there would have been blood over the bell. There would have been blood over the stairs and there wasn't. And there would have been more blood on her head. There wasn't. Like if she got a laceration to the back of her head and then she fell face forward, their blood would have completely covered her and her hair. It hadn't. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, you would imagine that. Right. So what they're saying is this murder happened somewhere else. Your basement is not your crime scene. Oh, I thought you were going to say they cleaned it up. But yeah, no, that means it must have happened somewhere. And then, like you said, they brought it there. Right. So that was something that had always been assumed, you know, like the basement's the crime scene. And that's why no luminol test had ever been conducted in any other part of the house. Then they remembered the uneaten scone. She had been drinking coffee and about to eat the scone in the kitchen, and she must have been interrupted because it was left uneaten. So they go upstairs and they take a look at the table in the dining room. And on the dining room table, a tiny amount of blood was detected in a small, like, leg of the dining room table. Get out of town. Like tiny spots of blood, like pinprick sizes, like tiny, but it was there. It was blood spatter. So they're like, "Mm, something happened in this dining room. So they order the entire main floor be tested for blood, like a luminol test. So the first place they conducted the luminol test was the floor of the dining room hallway area and... They did the spray or whatever. And then when they turned the lights off, it was insane. The amount of glowing that it did from where the blood had been lit up the entire room. Like the whole floor was glowing in the dark. Really? There was so much blood. It looked, everything was covered in blood. See, but now that explains why there was nothing or not mm-hmm. that much down there. Yep. Then they tested the wall in the dining room. Shocking. It looked like someone did like a Jackson Pollock on the entire dining room wall. That must have been where the the blood spatter went. And when they were wiping it, cleaning it, it spread and they, they cleaned it though. Then they did like obviously the whole dining room and the chair that she they believed she was sitting in because it was right in front of like the coffee and the scone. The whole chair glowed with blood. So it must have hit her and then the blood flowed down behind her. All on the whole chair was covered in blood. So it's possible maybe she got hit from behind and didn't even know it was at, like yeah. it happened? Yes. Oh, man. And now this is really interesting, too, because um, what you're going to see with the luminol test is you're going to see a wider spread because obviously if the person's cleaning it up, they're spreading it as they're cleaning it, which is why it comes out in a wider kind of area when you're doing the luminol test. But someone cleaned up and they cleaned up very well not good enough but the amount of blood it is absolutely incredible that they were able to clean that up without it being like obviously detected i mean that is insane but honestly the true hero here so far is the scone i'm not i'm not making a joke i'm being (laughs) honest because you know what they well they they cleaned up a crime scene and tried to make it look like it happened somewhere else, but they didn't. They didn't know about the scone. It was going to give them the clues that they needed. The scone gave them the clue. You go scone. <laughs> so obviously, after this, she had been dragged down 
to the basement because there was actually a drag mark. The luminol detected the drag from the dining room into the basement. You got to be kidding me. No. So her death was staged. Another thing that gave it away was the shoe, the right shoe being on the left side. That is true. So news about Christine's death spread like a California wildfire through Palo Alto. The people of the affluent community no longer felt safe. A killer was among them, and any of them could be next. Because of this, the pressure was put on the police officers and detectives to solve the crime and make the taxpayers happy. It was clear that what people were nervous about was whether or not they were in danger. So the detectives looked at the other crimes in the area. Now, there had been a string of residential burglaries that they thought it could be connected to. So during a canvas of the neighborhood, officers were able to find out that a house nearby the Fitzhugh's house was under construction. And one of the men on the crew was on parole. And the crew was working relatively close to where all the robberies in the neighborhood had taken place. So they wanted to bring in this man for questioning. Even if he didn't murder Christine, they're thinking, okay, here's a guy who went to jail for burglary and all of these burglaries are happening around him. So one way or the other, we have to talk to this guy and maybe he's the one that committed the murder because maybe she'd walked in on him doing it. Like maybe she came home with the coffee and the scone. So they spoke to the man and they told him like, listen, it was inevitable that we were going to come have a talk with you. And he admitted that he had gone away for robbery in 1998. And, you know, he knew that there were six robberies and he he was like, I knew you guys were going to come talk to me. Six robberies in six months. And I've been working on this house for six months. I totally get it. Um, But he denied all involvement and he was able to provide an alibi for most of the dates of the robberies and the day of the murder. He was working during the times that these crimes all took place, including the murder. Um, And he was an electrician on the site and all of the people that were working with him said, yes, confirmed that he was there on those dates. So detectives, you know, just They had to cover their bases. They really hadn't ever liked the man for the murder. They just, they couldn't get one, have a one-track mind with the husband. It would just be bad. So the murder they knew had been personal because that's what a strangulation is. So they didn't feel like this was just some stranger that just came into the house. It was a brutal attack and then a strangulation. Plus the cleanup. Like, the cleanup must have taken a long time. So this isn't, like, someone who's going to come in and it's a burglary or robbery gone wrong and let me stay and clean because I have all the time in the world. Like, if if it was truly a, a burglary, you're going to kill that person if you have to and then book it out of there. Right, you're not going to stay at all. And clean. To, like, clean and move a body. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the intruder scenario just totally didn't make sense. The detectives asked the friends and family of Christine if they could think of anyone who would have wanted to hurt Christine, and they could think of no one. They checked her financial records and the couple's and both of their phone records. There was no evidence of anything strange, no gambling, no affairs, no money owed, no money mysteriously paid out. So what happened here? And no matter what scenario they threw out there, the detectives always came back to the same conclusion. The only one that made sense to them, that Ken did this. Right. I mean, there's not many other people that would have the the ability to get in and out without breaking in, have the ability to have like, you know, he just, you know, the ability to clean everything and have everything there. Like you have to be like, that's not easy for someone that doesn't have access to the house to do is what I'm saying. Right. So the only problem with this is the fact that Ken cannot be placed at the house at the time of death for Christine. They needed to find the motive. Now, the only problem was the Fitzhughes were quite literally the perfect family. They were rich, two perfect kids in private schools, uh, two perfect dogs, Two beautiful German sports cars, a gorgeous house in a desired neighborhood, and they had a boat. They had everything anyone could dream of. 
so what happened here? Yeah, like what made this happen? What made Ken snap? Yeah. But we have learned many things while covering all of these cases. And one of those things is... Infidelity. Not all that glitters is gold. Okay. Okay. Am I on this something? You're jumping into cheating. I'm not there. Oh, I'm okay. not there. <laughs> In their search for something to debunk the perfectness of the Fitzhugh household, the detectives took a second glance at the couple's financial records. And guess what? Are you asking me? Yeah, I don't I'm want to jump you. the gun here. They're broke. They're broke. Ah! So at the time of the murder, the couple was not going to be able to make all of the payments that were due in the month of May. They were going to start having to either sell things or begin to live on credit. That's scary. Like that month, they were going to go bankrupt. So money. Could that be it? Was there a life insurance policy payout? Because that usually is what it's all about. But in doing some digging, the detectives were able to find out that there was a life insurance policy on Christine. How much are we talking? Well, really nothing. Only $48,000, which she made more teaching in a year than the life insurance policy would pay out. So there was no big payday involved for him. So I don't think money's motive then. Even though they were broke, I don't know if that's enough for, like, is that enough for motive? Yeah, it might just have been another thing they had to deal with. Like $48,000 to kill your wife? That seems, I mean, no matter what amount of money it is, it, you know, obviously you don't want to kill your wife. But, well, yes. You know, I'm just saying it doesn't make sense. But if you're in sense. debt and there's a million dollar yeah. thing, then that makes sense. I'm just saying, it, it, yeah, it doesn't fit. Right. So detectives thought about it hard. Why would a man want to kill his wife? Detectives tried to speak to the family and friends of Christine and Ken, but they really didn't have too much to share. They were a really private couple. But someone had to know something. They were told that the couple had not always lived in Palo Alto. They had come from San Diego. So the detectives thought, okay, let's reach out to people in San Diego and see you know, what they have to say about Ken and Christine because they had, they'll had they know them for longer. So finally, after doing a lot of searching, the detective was able to speak to someone that had known the couple back when they lived in San Diego and still came to see them a lot while they lived in Palo Alto. They said that they were really private and that there were odd things every now and again that would happen, like the couple would get into fights at parties, but nothing beyond, like nothing bizarre or nothing that they felt concerned about. But they just knew they weren't necessarily the perfect couple they were always trying to portray. They saw a more real side of them. And the detectives had asked the friend if there was ever anyone that the couple fought with or someone that they thought might have done this to Christine or someone that was maybe just capable of doing this to Christine. And they said they didn't know about being capable of murder, but they knew that the couple had been very close with a man named Robert Brown when they lived in San Diego. And then out of nowhere, with no explanation, they abruptly cut ties with him and stopped speaking to him. I wonder why. I wonder why they stopped talking. Well, that was odd. And it was really only like, the only lead they'd gotten in a really long time. So the next thing they wanted to do was talk to Robert Brown. Then, in looking through the family's phone records, they learned something very interesting. Just weeks before her murder, Christine and Ken had been receiving and making phone calls to Robert Brown, someone they had been not in touch with for years. So was it a coincidence that this man came back into their lives and now Christine was dead? I mean, it's a possibility, but I, I hmm, would they, would this person have access to the house like that though? No. And even if he did, I don't think you'd want to sit there and clean it up. Well, we still don't know. You're right. We don't know what enough. What happened. You're right. So detectives reached out to more of the Fitzhugh's friends to talk about the situation with Robert Brown. And it seems like all of them knew a little bit. So when you put all of their little bit of information together, 
painted a very interesting picture. While Ken and Christine lived in San Diego, they had been very close with Robert Brown. He had worked with Ken and the three of them were always together. They did a lot of business dealings together and they really attended a lot of parties. They were kind of like, that was their party buddy. He was also the godfather of their younger son. They were as close as close could be. The problem was that Robert Brown had a drug and alcohol addiction. He had tried really hard to deal with it and there had been bouts of sobriety, but his addiction really controlled his whole life. And it seemed like although he would go through times of being sober, he would always kind of fall back to it, whether it was drugs or alcohol. So for reasons directly relating to his addiction, Brown had gotten himself in trouble. He was disbarred and lost his law license. And this, of course, made his drinking a lot worse. Ken and Christine, because they loved him, agreed to pay for a rehab center for him so he could turn his life around. And he went. But shortly after his release, Brown had suffered a relapse. Ken and Christine made their choice to step away from the friendship after that. It was all a bit too much for them, and they cared about him too much to watch him do that to himself, and they no longer wanted to enable him. So they decided to end the friendship until he could get sober. Okay. I mean, at least we have an explanation for that, for that disconnection. Which, which right. I mean, that's, if he's trying to get help, that's great. But also, with hearing this, it also brings up the question, maybe did he relapse again and try to go there to maybe take money like or maybe. ask for money and maybe she said no and then it escalated right and then maybe since they've done business dealings maybe he knew that he uh, that the husband wouldn't be back in time or that he owed him money maybe maybe or maybe he was upset for them abandoning him during his time of need there's actually a lot with that that could happen right all possible motives they are so the detective was able to track robert brown down He reached out to him and left a voicemail. And days later, he got a call back from Robert Brown. And he said he would come in and speak with detectives. Brown was brutally honest with the detectives about both his addiction and his friendship with Ken and Christine. He said that he loved them and he knew that they loved him. But he was aware of how bad and how toxic his addiction had been. He understood why they cut him off. Brown said that it took him some time, but eventually he had been able to clean himself up and he was confident in himself enough to reach out to Christine again via a postcard. And that was what facilitated the couple talking to him again. They asked Brown for his alibi and he had a pretty solid one. From what he was saying, the alibi proved that it didn't, it seemed like he had motive but he didn't have the means to kill Christine because this alibi checked out. Now, I don't know for sure where the alibi is. I couldn't find it anywhere, but it had been verified by police several times. Okay, well, I mean, if it's been verified by police, then I think it checks out. So before he left, the detectives had one final question for Robert Brown. It was something the detective was curious about. Why did he only specifically reach out to Christine? When he sent the postcard, why hadn't he addressed it to both Christine and Ken? Well, he said, I had a special relationship with Christine. And he admitted that the two of them, for several years, had had an affair. No, I knew it. Infidelity. Infidelity. It's always the reason. But that's motive. It could be motive for the husband. I mean, it might be even a motive for uh, the Mr. Brown guy as well. Yes. Even though they were having a relationship, maybe she was like, I can't do this anymore. And maybe he wanted to start it again. Yeah. And then she was like, no, I don't want any part of it. My husband's going to find out. This is bad. And then he goes there and then kills her. Mm. It's a possibility. So it could be either maybe. one of them. I liked the dialogue. You like that? Yeah. It's almost like a reenactment. I know, but I felt weird. Well, that's the act that they were putting on. Mm-hmm. So they asked him if Ken had ever found out about them. And he said... You know, to his knowledge, no, he hadn't found out. Now, it did come out in this initial interview because, as Brown would later claim on the stand, um, his mind was clouded because he had taken a lot of medication. Um, So, like, when 
Brown, when this goes to trial, Brown's like, I don't remember saying any of this to the police. I was on so much meds. Right. It's like a cop out. Yes. Yep. Um, but we did find out um, the following was true. Are you ready? I'm ready. When Robert Brown sent the initial postcard to Christine, which said that he was now sober and had moved to the area and put his phone number, Christine had called him back. When she called Robert Brown, she said that her eldest son, Justin, was about to graduate from college and they were really happy and it would be nice for him to share in that moment with them because he had known Justin. And she said she believed it was finally time to tell Justin the truth, that Robert was his father, Wait. not Ken. <laughs> what? Get out of here. Get out of here. The oldest son is... Is, is not Ken's. Not Ken's. is Robert oh, Brown's. Oh, man. And the younger son's his godfather. Like, oh, godson. Oh, my God. Okay. So the son is just going... So as soon as he graduates from college, she's going to tell him, your dad's not your dad. It's Robert. <laughs> oh, man. So now motive for the son. I see what you're saying. So Robert had known this all along. And um, that was proven by his will. So, like, it wasn't a surprise for Robert that he was the the father of Justin. He knew, he knew. Okay. that he was the father. Because in a will that he had written up in 1996, where it listed all of his beneficiaries, uh, Justin, his son, is mentioned. And Christine was mentioned in the will as well as the mother of Justin. So it's he knew. But Ken and Justin did not know. She had kept that secret for over 20 years. This was motive. Six months prior to her murder, she told her ex-lover that she was going to tell her son who his father was after his graduation. And guess when his graduation was? Well, it didn't happen yet, but it, his graduation was in the at the end of May, like the third week in May. She died on May 5th. She died before she could tell Justin. She died before she could before tell Justin. Before she could tell Justin. So it's weird. She had this conversation with Robert Brown in December. I'm going to tell Justin in May. And she dies right before she can tell him. Well, she's murdered. So had she told Ken? What was his reaction? And the first thing the detectives wanted to do was they wanted to prove the paternity through a blood test. So they tested the blood and Robert Brown was telling the truth. Justin was his son. That is so crazy. Wild. Babe, I did not expect that. <laughs> that is so crazy. Okay. So Ken's financial world is falling apart. Yeah. And now this secret's going to be revealed. That that kid, his kid is not his kid for 20 years. And it would ruin his perfect family. Yep. And his wife was lying to him. Yep. And now how does he feel about his son? Probably not good. For some people, they don't. Yeah, it it would good. Well, it would, it would make you pause. You know, and question things, and think sure. of, think about the the last twenty years. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Um, you rethink every moment. You rethink the birth, pregnancy. You rethink the right. birth. You think rethink the first birthday, the baptism. And you everything. also think about is your was your marriage like real? Right. Like you question every aspect right. of, of your relationship. So I mean, exactly. that's pretty. That's uh pretty hot and heavy. And detectives were thinking that would make any man snap. Yeah. This information prompted them to take a further look into Ken's alibi. They compared the records of his call logs from his cell phone, and they were able to ascertain that he was never in San Bruno. You mean Ken? Ken. Okay. He was never Never 45 minutes away. He was always home. So Kenneth Fitzhugh was arrested for the murder of... His wife of 33 years on May 19th, 2000, a few days before his, well, Justin's graduation. He had bludgeoned her to the point of near death, but then chose to stop and strangle her. He then cleaned up the whole scene, staged the fall down the stairs, and played the distraught husband. He put on the act on stage. 
That's what he did. And if if the detectives never talked to the friends from San Diego, they would have never found out about Robert Brown. And he and this like they wouldn't have been able to prove it was Ken. And isn't it insane though that in this case and other cases, right? It's the little minute details that mean nothing on its own, but it's when you start to put it together. Like, I mean, Jesus! Like they they literally looked at a cup of coffee and a scone, and they and then they a postcard and like all these little things, and it became something. It became big. something. Yep. That is so wild to me. Yep. So Ken Fitzhugh was convicted of second degree murder and was sentenced to fifteen years to life in prison. He was paroled on compassionate grounds in February of 2012 due to his advanced Parkinson's disease. He died in Palo Alto eight months later at the age of 69. What a story. I mean, that was insane to find that out, that it wasn't even his kid. Yeah, and that's what made him snap. I mean, we've seen people snap for smaller right. things. But it's crazy that in the 11th hour, they went from zero su- or like one, zero to one suspects to three. Yeah. I mean, because you have to rule it out. You you just yes. have to do your due diligence. And they did it here. They yeah. really did. They didn't get stuck on the husband. They moved on because you could always go back. But if you get stuck on one lane, you'll never get off of it. And then you'll be criticized. Exactly. So, so they did the right thing. I agree. They did do the right thing. I think they made the right choice. They did a good investigation. And right away, I think the first responders even catching on quickly, like, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And it's wild that they, they're they like, there's too much blood. And then the medical examiner is like, not what? even yeah. enough. <laughs> what are you talking about? So, um, I will say that I do feel bad, though, for the family. I, I feel bad for the two sons. Just yeah. to, ha- I mean, to now find out. Now think about that poor, the eldest son. Right. Not only has your mom been murdered, but then you find out that that's not your, the only parent you have left is not your biological parent. And that's just, that's devastating for that poor boy. And I feel terrible for him. It's a lot of trauma really quickly. And I really hope that both of, both of them, adjusted. you know, have adjusted and, and is trying to do the best that they can. Yeah. Wow. Is that a wild ride? It really was. And I found it was it's so interesting because it's it's similar to that not similar. There's obviously a lot of differences, but yes, the staircase. Yeah. Yes. The staircase. What is it with staircases? I think uh I think that it's like an e- it, it it is an, an everyday accident that can take place that can cause a death and it's one of the most dangerous parts of your home. And I think people just say it's a good excuse to say like that's what it was. But seven lacerations and a strangulation it's a bad staging, yeah. but a good cleanup. Wild. Not good enough. Well, guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we can't wait to bring you uh, two more episodes in May. So, well, one Patreon, one regular. John just got nervous. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? You're changing up on me? We're doing more? I mean, that's cool, but wasn't expecting that. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.